I'm Stuart Preston, and this is the Consciousness Podcast, where each week I have a conversation with an expert in human consciousness. This week, we pick up where we left off with my conversation with Raphael Millier, and our topic was psychedelics and consciousness. It was a great conversation, so please enjoy the conclusion of my time with Raphael Millier. And when you're, when you're talking about the ego dissolution and you know, the merging into the world. Because interesting, you're, you're, what you were just going through with the self as being awareness of experiences and almost interpreted as as a self, but more more of an experience or a feeling as mm-hmm. opposed to an entity. Um, when, you, when you talk about the ego dissolution or the self-dissolution under these circumstances and merging into the world, what do you think that mm-hmm. boundary is? What do you think is happening there as you as you move from this this feeling of self to this feeling of one with with the world, so to speak, if, if that's even a proper way to put that? Yeah. What what is that boundary, and where, how do how do you cross over from from one into the other? Right. Um, so so first of all, um, um, when I I talk about this sense of self world distinction of self-world boundary, I think of it as something similar to what I've been talking about when I, when I, when I talk about the sense of self-location. I think it, 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 it's two facets of the same thing. So it's the sense of being here now immersed in this environment such that I myself am distinct from this environment uh, because I, 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 am a, I am aware of my of where I, I fit in the environment and, and where, um, you know, of, of my presence in this environment. Precisely, I am aware of, of myself as distinct from this environment. So I, I think of this mm-hmm. as two classes of the same thing. And so I think of, I mean, there are lots of additional work to be done on ego dissolution, but I think one aspect of it, maybe, um, is the loss of this thing, loss of this self-world distinction or sense of being there at, Inverse environment. Um, right. Another aspect might be the narrative aspect, which maybe we can we can come back to later. But there's this kind of classic distinction between the narrative and the minimal self that we can maybe mm. come back to. But uh, anyways, um, so um, what's going on when you lose this kind of, of 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 feeling of boundary? Well, that's a very 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 interesting question, um, and. Uh, one way to, to think about this is, is, is the following. So uh, your brain is constantly trying to make sense of the signals coming from your, uh, the various receptors you have that, that, that transmits, that encode information about the external world. So that right. includes your, your, your retina, uh, uh, your ears, and so on, your, uh, the whole, all, the, all the receptors in your skin and, and, and your body, and so on and so forth. So we have, we have a lot of different kinds of receptors, even much more than the five different classical senses. Um, and uh, and, 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 and you, your brain is constantly loaded by this information, and it has to make sense of it. Because uh, what modern science tells us is that when you see the world, for instance, it's not just as if there is a little picture of the world that gets in your retina and stretch your brain, such that it's immediately evident what you're seeing. And then the brain, uh, you know, uh, doesn't have to do any work, so to speak, to, to make sense of this information coming from your retina. Actually, 
the information coming from your retina is very noisy and there are many ways to interpret it and it's, it's, all, it's all a very messy thing to perceive the world and, and the brain has to, to do a lot of work to try to make sense of it all. So right. that applies to the perception of the external world to make sense of what's around you. Um, but that also applies to make sense of where you yourself fit in this, in this, in this world. So the brain is also constantly assessing, triangulating, if you will, your, 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 kind, of, your kind of position in this environment, um, making sense mm. of, of where you fit, where you are. Uh, and and, and you know, in, in, that's a very simplistic, overly simplistic way to put it, but that's kind of what underlies, uh, I believe, this, this sense of uh, distinction between self and world. So, in order to build a good model of what the world is like, the brain also has to make a good model of what you, yourself, how you fit in, in this world, because um, uh, to make sense of the signals coming from the senses, you have to make sense of your own presence in the world. For instance, uh, in yeah. a visual field, you, have, you, you, you see your own nose, right? If you, if you at least that's a, maybe not at all times, but most of the time you, you have a part of your nose that is, that is included in your, in your visual field. Right. Now, when you move around in the world, everything changes in your visual field, apart from your nose. So the brain has to make sense of this. Uh, it has to make sense of the fact that, that everything is, is, is changing in its information, except for small parts of the visual field that is the, that is the part that is occluded by um, the, the tip of your nose. So right. in order to make sense of this data, the brain, the best hypothesis, the best model that the brain can make is that uh, the nose is part of you. So that's kind of like a, a toy example, like a you know, statistic example, but kind of like to, to convey this idea that um, uh, in order to make a, the best model of, of how things are in the world, uh, the brain also has to account for how you fit in within this world. Um, and so what goes on, I think, uh, uh, at least in part, when, you, when, when people, when individuals take, take high, high doses of certain psychoactive substances, um, is that things start going, start going wrong in the way in which the brain processes such information. So instead of making the correct guesses about what's going on in, in the world, um, uh, uh, the brain starts uh, uh, incorrectly um, um, binding certain types of information together and not binding other types of information. So for instance, uh, it is a well-known thing that, that with psychedelics, people can experience some, ex some things that, that closely resemble synesthesia. So, um, you know, mm -hmm. the experience of, of, of perceiving something from one modality in another modality, uh, sensory modalities, for instance, seeing sounds or hearing colors or this kind of thing. Right. Um, yeah. And, and, and one way to describe what's going on there is that the brain is incorrectly binding together information from two different senses that shouldn't be bound together. It, 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 it's, it's, uh, it's doing something it shouldn't be doing normally, but because it is in this, in this altered states that, that, that uh, leads to abnormal processing, um, uh, it, starts, it starts getting things wrong, essentially. Um, and so you start, you start 
integrating together, bringing together information from different modalities that shouldn't be brought together. And if this is going on, it cannot make sense that, on the other hand, uh, the opposite is also going on. So what the brain should be integrating together or binding together, uh, it's no longer doing it correctly. So when it should be binding all the information from your senses that relate to yourself in order to correctly estimate your position in space and where you fit in the environment and how you are distinct from the environment, well, it's no longer doing that. So that it's no longer putting in the same folder, if you will, in the same file, all the information that pertains to you as opposed to the external world. Informa information both from your, 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 your visual sense, so, so seeing when you see your own body, but from your from, from, from perception, the sensation of your limb positions, from the vestibular ear, uh, uh, and from uh, what we call interception, so the inner organ sensations and so on. Uh, instead of assuming that all of this pertains to the same thing, which is you, you yourself, your body, and, and you, um, this starts breaking down uh, in such a way that um, uh, gradually, as, as this goes on, you start having a strong, a solid sense of where you fit in the environment, uh, of what's you and what's the world. And, and, and that leads, I think that at least partially leads to the experience, sorry, the experience of ego dissolution. Uh, yeah. It's uh, an experience of gradually losing um, the sense of where you fit in the world because the brain no longer correctly interprets the flow, the flow of information it gets from, from, your, from your, your senses. And actually, yeah. the, there might be some ways to, to confirm this hypothesis in the lab through some behavioral measurements that we probably didn't have time to get into, but I have a project on this. You you have a project on that? Yes. Yeah, so I mean, it's it's. Um, I can't really. I, I guess I can't really talk about it yet because it's all very early days, and it's just like right. playing with with ideas. But basically, um, there is. Um, um, uh, it seems that from from recent uh, recent evidence in psychology that that it seems um, that the the brain. Um, uh, um, it has a, um, um, a representation of the space around your body that, that is, is known as the peripersonal space. And uh, uh, if, uh, this is very important uh, because this is what, this is what allows uh, organisms to, to um, react more quickly to threats that are immediately close to them. So it seems that the brain is quicker to uh, react to stimuli that are in a specific zone around, around your body um, uh, that is not a very big zone but within a few dozen uh, centimeters around your body. Um, and it seems that in certain experimental manipulations you can do in, with virtual reality, that, that's something that is done as a full body illusion. I can't really go into details, but uh, people uh, uh, um, you can manipulate how where people feel located, so you can generate the illusion that uh, people are located in front of themselves, in front of their body. They say so they're mm. located further in front of the body as, as to where they are, their body is generally located. And this has been shown to translate into uh, an extension forward of the peripersonal space. 
um, this kind of like space around your body that where you, your brain is quicker to integrate information. And so the hypothesis I, I would very much like to, to test by teaming up with, with uh, psychologists and new scientists is um, whether in the psychedelic state, and especially at high doses, there is a breakdown of the peripersonal space such that you actually, the boundaries of the peripersonal space become blurred or become uh, flattened or don't really, are not really sharp boundaries anymore. And this would kind of make sense if uh, this is all related to self-location. So uh, this is exciting because it could give us a completely uh, uh, implicit measurement of uh, uh, ego dissolution that wouldn't be relying on reports. So you could, you could, just, you could just look, for instance, at, at uh, uh, EEG data, so data from uh, you know, uh, um, electrical signals in the brain. Uh, while doing a certain manipulation, um, um, and you could you could you could uh, have some data about how the peripersonal space is modified by the drug, and this would be without having to rely at all on re on reports from people, because reports are always controversial. You can always say, right. do they really mean that they lost their self and so on? Do they really mean this and that? So so yeah, that's just a parenthesis about future work in this area. Okay. Wow. Yeah, that is sure interesting. Um, you have been very generous with your time, and I have really taken advantage of that. So I don't want to do any more of that. I have I have so many other questions. I don't know if we're, maybe we can schedule another time sometime in the future because I still had some other things to go <laughs> through. Just yeah, your your body of work is just immense. But um, before before we break it, um, did you have anything else that you wanted to discuss, or, or anything that came up that was kind of on the tip of your mind that you wanted to get out? Um, well, let me think. Um, well, I, I guess we we focused uh, almost exclusively on on dissolution and and the notion of self awareness and 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 the self, but. Um, I just want to say that there is much more to the research on 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 drug induced states uh, uh, than than the, the specific focus on on right. self experience. Uh, I've mentioned the therapeutical benefits, which which is probably one of the most exciting thing about the the renaissance of drug research. Um, unfortunately, there is still a lot of prejudice about such research, but there are really fantastic people, scientists working on this, and and uh, this is hugely promising for the future of treatment of depression, among other things, as I mentioned. Um, and also, um, you know, another aspect of my, of my kind of like a side project I have been doing with teaming up with a, the group um, uh, at Imperial College London, uh, which is one of the pioneering, pioneering groups doing uh, brain imaging with, with drugs. Uh, uh, the team of David Neff and Robin Carl Harris, who are doing a fantastic job. Uh, I've been collaborating with the new study of DMT, DMT being one of the one of classic psychedelic drugs that is very potent and, and is kind of right. unique in, in, in its effects. Um, and, uh, and, and what I've been doing with, with this group is that uh, traditionally they use questionnaires to assess the effects of the drug. Um, and I've suggested that we also use uh, a specific interview technique 
that I had been trained for with the creator in France. It's, it's created called 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 um, Claire Petit Mangin, the French researcher, developed this technique called the microphenomenological interview technique, mm -hmm. which basically aims at um, eliciting detailed descriptions of what people felt, what people experienced during a specific time, uh, which which kind of avoids the usual biases of naive introspection. Uh, and gives a very detailed and accurate account of what people felt uh, in, in details that are, that are much greater than anything questioners can give us. And so we've been using this technique with, with, um, uh, in, with, with people uh, uh, being administered uh, dimethyltryptamine, DMT, um, which is a very short-lived experience, which lasts about just 15 minutes before being completely back to normal. Right. Um, and what's very exciting about this that, is that we've been able to kind of isolate kind of like the the generic structure of a typical DMT experience across time, so such that we have more or less four main phases of the experience. The first phase, where people have a, a sensation of acceleration or like rushing forward, um, plus a kind of like one buzz all over the body, and then uh, the a visual phase where they they, they, they have stopped having hallucinations of usually being in a grid-like structure uh, with big patterns, uh, so like a very geometric kind of structure. Right. Uh, and they lose all kind of body awareness, uh, which is really interesting, even though they're, you know, they're in a hospital round room surrounded by scientists and so on. And then at higher doses, they have this third phase of reaching a, a, a hallucinatory location. So it feels as if they reach a place, which can be a room or just a, a place. And, and usually that's where they see objects or entities. Uh, so they have these very uh, uh, fascinating hallucinations of, 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 of entities sometimes uh, to which they attribute consciousness uh, uh, when they're in this, in this state. Um, sometimes they interact with entities, sometimes they even feel as if the entities are transmitting some knowledge. So they have some very rich hallucinations. Um, and then they have so a how did you describe phase. that uh, that yeah. third that third phase? What was it? How do you describe that again? Well, um, there, there is this term in in, in, in uh, which which goes around in the circles of psychonauts and, and users of DMT. They talk about the breakthrough, which is you know uh, uh, when you kind of break through the initial phase of 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 of, uh, of, of pattern transmission and and and, and reach a more seric scenic uh, details um, uh, kind of environments in, in, your, in your hallucination. Uh, but yeah, basically it's, it's what people describe this in, in, our, in our experience, that they don't have huge doses. So it's unclear whether this is really what people call breakthrough, but uh, at least they describe at high doses, they describe reaching a location. So they need to have this feeling of the, the richer place. They're, 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 they're no longer floating in these patterns of geometric structures, but they, right. they, they go somewhere. Um, and and they, see, um, they see things that, that are, that, that may seem completely absurd. And it's actually, you know, often quite entertaining to do this interview because you, you hear a lot of weird <laughs> uh, dreamlike uh, experiences. So uh, for instance, one participant had this experience of seeing, um, reaching a location where she saw uh, three uh, uh, figures of three, three entities the first thing was a, a sort of a windmill uh, turning. Um, uh, the second thing was a, a, a Cleopatra-like figure 
which I think was just a bust with, a, with the head of Cleopatra, like an Egyptian, Egyptian-looking princess or something. Um, and wow. next to this figure was a little blue triangle. And what was really fascinating to me is that this, this participant had the strong intuition that both the Cleopatra-like figure and the blue triangle were conscious. And that, even more so, that the, the, the Cleopatra-like figure was, was the boss and the, the triangle was the sidekick. So this is extremely weird, I mean, weirdly specific, right? It's, it's, it's um, uh, I, I find it very interesting to study how, why do people get such strong intuitions when they're in this state? Um, yeah. So I, 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 I do not believe some psychonauts tend to, to think of, uh, uh, um, because these experiences uh, are so intense and so, um, you know, immersive that they, that sometimes uh, uh, come to believe that, that they actually access parallel dimensions or whatever, parallel universes and so on. Uh, uh, as I mentioned, that I'm, I'm a naturalist. I, I don't, I don't uh, uh, um, you know, I, I, I strongly right. disagree with such, such interpretations. So I, I think, you know, these are the all hallucinations that are caused by the way in which the, the DMT molecule acts on, on certain neurotransmitters in the brain. Uh, but uh, uh, nonetheless, it's very interesting to, to, to study how such detailed and rich hallucinations come about. And this, this kind of like intuitions that people have, this feeling of knowledge that, that they feel that this thing they see is conscious or this is the case and so on. And they just, they can't explain why they, they, they feel like that. So they just know it. They just have this very strong intuition when they're in the state. Um, uh, well, that, I think, is a very interesting thing to study. So that's another realm of studying in psychology research that is not linked to self-awareness, but that I find very, very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. So, yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad you, uh, you brought that up and shared that, because I know that was even in our pre, our exchange in the, the beginning about the questions, I could tell that was important to you. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad you right. uh, didn't, didn't let me get out of here without you going over that. <laughs> Um, yeah, was there, was there anything else that, uh, you want um, to bring up? I mean, I, I find everything on here so interesting. I just know that, uh, you know, we've gone quite, quite over here. I don't, yeah, I don't of course. I mean, it depends. Of... I mean, I guess, yeah, you, you, uh, the, 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 the episodes can, can go on forever. Uh, so, right. um, um, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm happy to leave it at that if you, if you want, uh, uh, there are lots of things that, that of course, uh, um, I, I could talk about. I, uh, just quickly, uh, I, I um, uh, to mention a few a few research projects that I that are ongoing um, that I have. I'm um, uh, teaming up with with two people from the Imperial Group, um, uh, Robin Card Harris and one of his PhD students, Leo Roseman. Uh, uh, and uh, and uh, an, Israel, an Israeli uh, researcher, neuroscientist, Aviva Berkovich Ohana, who's a, a specialist of uh, meditation. Uh, so we are teaming up to write a paper which compares the phenomenology and the neurophysiology of meditation states and drug-induced states. Mm -hmm. um, so we want to kind of suggest that there is some overlap between uh, some of these states, but there are also important differences, and we. We kind of want to, to look into that in more details. So that, that's one, one exciting, exciting project. Um, then we didn't get into yeah, that. Yeah, I find that was, very interesting also. Hmm, yeah. Uh, there. 
Yes. So, I mean, I don't know if you, I mean, I'm happy to talk about it, but I guess we have to keep it, keep it short at this point. Um, well, I mean, I, I have the time. We can go over it. I, I could actually break this into two episodes. Right. Well, I, I have a bit of time still, so it's, I'm, I'm happy to, to keep going, but <laughs> yeah, feel free to yeah, stop me. I'd, I'd like part. to know about the, I would, I, you know, I'm very curious about the meditation and the overlap with psychedelics. Um, okay. so I'm very interested right. in your, your study of, you know, the Arrowhead trip reports. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then there, you know, there's, there's a couple more questions that I am very interested in. So, I mean, if you're, if you're willing, I'm, then I'll, I can, I'll, I can keep I'll make this accessible with, to people. With, with pleasure. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, again, thank you for, for inviting me because I'm, I'm always, as, as a, as a, as a researcher, you don't, you don't get that many opportunities to, to, to talk about your work to a wider audience. And I always find this extremely rewarding. Uh, so I, you know, uh, Wonderful. Um, and, and often actually I get like very thought provoking and useful feedback from people who previously were not familiar with this kind of research. So I think, I think it's, um, I think it's a great opportunity. So I'm, I'm happy to, to keep going. Um, so I'll, regarding the meditation, um, drug state overlap, um, I think um, uh, this is the, the the early stage of, of our of our paper, but um, um, there are some striking similarities between certain states that that experienced meditators can reach, um, and certain states that people can reach uh, with high doses of certain drugs. So, right. interestingly, these similarities uh, extend to both uh, what people feel, so the phenomenology and what's going on in the brain, so the neurophysiology. Um, so um, in terms of what people feel, um, there is, um, um, uh, there is a, a style, a, a, let, let's say that modern research, contemporary researchers have tried to, to break down uh, um, different styles of meditation across cultures because um, across cultures, across uh, um, uh, various very, very different cultures, we find similar styles of meditation that can be grouped in the same, you know, uh, that generic, generic groups of meditation. And what's, when, one such group is what's, uh, what has come to be known uh, uh, as non-dual awareness meditation, which uh, uh, refers to uh, some styles of meditation originating in the, the Vedic and Chinese traditions. And these, like non-dual awareness meditation, aims at reaching the state in which there is no longer a duality or a distinction between self and subject and object. Um, between uh, self and? Well, between, I guess one way to put it would be to say between self and the world, but maybe that's a bit uh, too loaded. But the, the, the way in which it's typically put is between subject and object, such as no distinction between, between experiencer and experience. So the idea mm -hmm. is that there is a state of pure awareness, a state in which um, they no longer experience a distinction between they themselves as the, the person who's meditating 
right? And the content of the meditation is just one and the same thing. And this is very thought-provoking and interesting. Um, and the, the, the Adida Berkovich-Johanna, who's, who's one of the co-authors of the paper, has done a lot of interesting work uh, um, with also all the styles of limitations, rejecting the people um, might be able to reach something like a selfless state, a state of ego dissolution, if you will, but which is not drug-induced, but which is induced by um, uh, meditation. So that's quite remarkable, if, if, if it is indeed the case, quite remarkable that uh, without taking anything, without taking any potent uh, pharmacological substance, uh, people with enough training, we're talking about thousands of hours, uh, maybe ten, uh, dozens of thousands of hours of training, um, can reach uh, such dramatically different states, you know, just, just by, by their own will. Um, but, but that being said, much, much more work remains to be done. Uh, but there is another respect in which, in which um, so that's the first thing. So the, it seems that as if both certain drugs and both experienced meditators in certain styles of meditation can reach a state in which self-experience is dramatically altered. So then there is what's going on in the brain, because also uh, in, the, in the past decades, there has been a, a lot of, 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 of an explosion of, of studies of, on, on the brain imaging studies with, with meditation, including expert meditators or advanced practitioners. Um, and what they've been um, realizing is that uh, um, their um, multiple neuroimaging studies have shown that activity uh, and connectivity, so how different zones of the brain are connected, uh, so activity and connectivity in, in major hubs of um, what's known as the default mode network, which is a, a large-scale network uh, in the brain, a network of brain areas that is uh, typically very active at rest when you're not doing anything, but is less mm -hmm. active uh, when you do a specific task, when you do a goal-directed task. Um, right. So, uh, so the activity and, and, and the communication between areas of this network are altered in response to short and long-term meditation practice during the meditation practice. And interestingly, the same observation has been made about psychedelic drugs. So psychedelic drugs also alter activity and connectivity in this default mode network. And there has been a lot of, um, a lot of speculation about whether the default mode network might be um, the neural correlate of the sense of self. Now, I think personally, I'm very cautious about such grand hypothesis because I think, you know, um, uh, it's very, first of all, as I mentioned, the notion of sense of self is, is itself quite ambiguous. Um, uh, isolating the neural correlates of something is also very difficult because typically a neural correlate is thought as um, the, the brain pattern of activity or connectivity that, the, 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 um, that is minimally sufficient to have a certain experience. Um, however, if you put people in a brain, you know, in an fMRI machine, if you, if you do brain imaging of people uh, during ego dissolution, and you see that regions 
areas X, Y, Z on the, in the brain uh, show altered activity, then you can't really conclude that these areas are responsible for the sense of self in the, in the, in, in, in the normal state. Uh, at can, most, you cannot? cannot. I, I don't think you can, because right. at most you can say that they are necessary for having a sense of self, because when their activity is disturbed or you know, disrupted, uh, you see that people no longer have uh, a sense of self. And that's assuming that right. we, 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 we could speak it in such simplistic terms. I think that, that's already uh, a very simplistic way to put it, but assuming that we think in such terms, um, you say, well, uh, uh, we look at the difference between people who don't experience ego dissolution and people who experience ego dissolution, we see that the difference is that uh, these provisions are involved. Um, and so, uh, we, and, and well, more precisely, activity and connectivity in these brain regions is disrupted. So we conclude that these brain regions, a certain pattern of activity and connectivity in these brain regions is necessary for the sense of self, for having a sense of self. Mm. Um, so even if we could say that, maybe something along those lines would be possible if you have a, a, a more specific definition of the sense of self. Um, that still doesn't give us the neural correlates of the sense of self in the traditional sense, which is not what is what kind of brain area or brain activity and connectivity is necessary for having a certain experience. So it's not a necessary condition for an experience, but it's what is minimally sufficient for an experience, the, the, the minimal sufficient conditions. That's not exactly the same. That's, I mean, in, in fact, that's completely different, right? So something might be necessary for uh, seeing colors, uh, but mm -hmm. it's necessary to have uh, activity in a certain part of your visual cortex to see colors. But that doesn't mean that it's sufficient. If, that is, if you only have this pattern of activity, well, that's not sufficient to, to have the experience of seeing colors. Right. So, on the other hand, if you take uh, the whole of the brain activity, uh, uh, when someone sees colors, well, that's sufficient for them to see colors. If you replicate exactly the brain state, the whole brain state, you take someone who is seeing colors, who is seeing, seeing red, uh, and you completely replicate, you, you take a, a you, for instance, you simulate in a, in a computer, let's say, uh, the totality of their brain state, uh, well, that would be sufficient for, uh, normally, that would be sufficient to, to replicate also the experience of, of seeing colors. I mean, um, uh, I won't. Be, I, I'm not getting into the, the details of, it, of, of um, what simulating the brain would involve in a computer. That's not the point. The point is that uh, you, 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 you remember. We might be tempted to say, "Well, then the, the whole brain state is the neural correlate of seeing seeing red." But that's not such, right. that's not such satisfactory either, because that's way too general. You just you, you just capture too many things. You just take the the whole the whole brain state instead of looking at what's specific to seeing red, right? So that's why right. uh, usually uh, the classic definition of the, um, um, you know, the, the, what we call the neural correlates of an experience, it's not what's necessary to have the experience, but it's not also what's just sufficient because the whole brain state will be sufficient. It's what's right. minimally sufficient. So it's like 
you reduce the scope to uh, the fewer things you need, the, the, the few things you need you would need to get this experience. So I don't know if this is clear. Is, uh, you don't know if this is what? I, I don't is, is this is this I mean does this make sense or is this clear, clear uh, Yeah. Clear enough? Yeah. Yeah, no it does. So, right. So that so that's just in a nutshell why um we have to be cautious when we when we, we look at meditation and, and, and uh drug induced states to try to find the neural correlates of you know uh, uh, there are some papers that, that use the expression neural correlates of the self, but I think that's that's uh, right. A very potentially misleading expression, but anyways, there are some similarities between meditation and, and drug in the states. Uh, I believe, and and the the uh, the, the co-authors of this uh, paper interpretation also believe that there are some important differences. So, uh, for a start, um, when you look at uh, um, uh, meditation, um, sorry, when you when you look at um, um, drug-induced uh, uh, states, drug-induced ego uh, solution, it often happens as the, at, the, at the peak of a heavily hallucinatory state. So something that has a very rich uh, kind of uh, uh, sensory content. Uh, on the other hand, meditation uh, and, and meditation-induced uh, selflessness, if you will, uh, these kind of states in expert meditators, which they report as uh, 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 the, the loss of distinction between subject and object. Well, that's often reported as something that's that's a contentless state. So somehow, or a state that is a state of pure awareness. It's not a state that is very rich in terms of like uh, sensory content, for instance. So yeah. there is there is something that's different there. Um, and also, um, um, it seems like in meditation you have less of a modification of bodily and sensory uh, inputs, or at least it's this, the modification of how the brain processes bodily and sensory inputs seems to be less dramatic than what happens at high doses of psychedelics. Um, so one way to make sense of such uh, differences is the distinction I, I briefly mentioned before between minimal and narrative self. Uh, which has been very influential in, in, uh, in, in, uh, in philosophy and psychology, neuroscience in, in the past uh, 15 years. Um, so the narrative self would be uh, the kind of networks of uh, self-related beliefs and autobiographical memories, so memories you have about yourself uh, that you have. So that's kind of all that constitutes your personal, your sense of personal identity. So it's very high-level stuff. It's uh, very sophisticated processes in, in your brain that that kind of like gives you a sense of who you are. You know, so you know the sense that I, I, I'm 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 from here, that I'm uh, I'm a, 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 a man from from France uh, who, who lives in Oxford and so on and so forth. Uh, that I have this and that personality traits. That I have these memories. Um, uh, that I have these beliefs about what I am, who I am, or whatever. Um, that's all. That, that's kind of what the, the nebula of, of, uh, of things, of processes that that we we call it, that we kind of like, yeah talk about as as the narrative self, um, and then the minimal self would be more like what I what I've been talking about all along in this in this interview, which is something like uh, uh, the more bodily driven, low level sensory uh, 
sense of self uh, that right. I personally uh, think is closely associated with the sense of being located in an environment, sense of like, where do I fit in, the, in my immediate environment? So it's something that's, that's, that's way less sophisticated. It's not about your personal identity, your name, your history, your beliefs, your, your kind of memories and, and, and personality traits and so on. It's something that's much more basic that presumably uh, maybe and probably many, many uh, species of animal species also, also have because it's, it's kind of important for survival to kind of, if you, I'm mean, assuming that, that other animal species are conscious, which is something that I think most philosophers tend to agree on nowadays, that, you know, yeah. uh, at least the at least, uh, advanced mammalian species uh, uh, enjoy some form of consciousness and, and presumably um, um, uh, uh, they have an awareness of their, uh, of how they fit in their environments and they have some kind of model of themselves uh, that translates into their country's experience. So that's the minimal self. And so right. uh, one hypothesis is that drug-induced good solution heavily disturbs the minimal self and probably also the narrative self insofar as during ego dissolution, people can forget their names, they can even forget that they're human. Uh, it can be really dramatic, so they can forget that, that you know, anything about their history or, or, or uh, right. the kind of things they are and so on. Um, and uh, in meditation-induced, quote-unquote, selflessness, if there is such a thing, uh, people seem to also lose like uh, any kind of self-related thoughts or uh, memories about themselves that they don't, they, they kind of, every, all of this fades away. They, 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 um, so uh, it seems that the narrative aspect is, is also heavily, heavily uh, disrupted somehow. Uh, also, this has to be specified in more, more, in more details. Uh, but the, the minimal aspect, like kind of like bodily sensory aspect, well, we have some 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 interesting discussions on this in in, in the, with the other authors of the paper, but the paper. But we we tend to think that it's, it's less maybe less dramatically altered in meditation than it is in drug induced states. That would kind of account for the difference. Uh, the fact that drug induced states are more uh, sensory loaded with sensory information and so on and hallucination. Right. So yeah, that's in yeah, a nutshell, an interesting distinction of, there because it's y there is that between the two, that almost dissolution of ego and self, but they are yeah. experienced in a in a really different way. Yeah, so a, I mean that's, that's, that's kind of like there. the you know we we still we we will need much more you know data and study years of studies uh, to. To, to really shed more light precisely on what it feels like to, to undergo both of these experiences and how specifically how they differ. Um, there are some interesting projects. A, a, friend, a, a friend of mine, uh, uh, Milan Scheidegger, who's working with the team of psychedelic research in uh, Zurich, has been involved. Uh, in a study um, looking at uh, the experience of advanced meditators on psychedelics, so kind of like combining the two, so they had some uh, some some very advanced meditation practitioners um, 
receive a dose of psilocybin, I think, uh, yeah. and meditate during the, the drug induced state. So that, that's all, that, uh, the, the results are not out yet, but that's something that, that's, uh, that's, that's probably very interesting. Um, yeah, that is. And I know yeah. in uh, like some of the, you know, shamanic experiences of, of psychedelics, in the whole process of integrating any of the therapeutic benefits that came out of it, it often recommended that people meditate. Right. And so I wonder about, you know, the, and it's one thing to recommend somebody meditate versus somebody who is a deep meditator with, with decades of experience. But it's, it's interesting that those two are, are brought together in, in practice. Yes. Yeah. Those ceremonies. Well, I think from, from what I remember that, that, that Milan told me, I think what, uh, one of the outcomes is that these, these experienced meditators were, were able to control um, their uh, experience with the drug much more than uh, normal right. people. Um, oh, so amazing. they have a greater degree of control because, uh, uh, well, meditation is a form of mental training, of course, and, and it makes sense that people who are extremely trained right. uh, would have a greater degree of control. Yeah. Great. All right. Um, keep going. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, okay. do you want me to say a word about the uh, uh, data mining stuff? Yeah. The, uh, and and just, uh, just as a note, I feel like the audio might be degrading a little bit again. Oh, is um, it? But that, uh, that, might, that might just be me. Okay. Uh, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm my connection must yeah, they're right there. So presumably good. is good because I'm 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 right next to the uh, internet box, but maybe it's my it's okay. I'll try to uh, I'll try to speak right in front of the computer. Um, okay. So yeah, but yes. the uh, the machine learning analysis of the the Arrowhead trip reports, I, you know, it's I'm very curious about what I know it's not done yet, but what you guys are discovering, what some of the insights are, and um, yeah. Just as a comment, a comment associated with the question is, I do, yeah. I, I do like your note that, um, you know, now you're able to study thousands of data points as opposed to the typical study that might involve, you know, 10, 15, 20 people. So it, right. I think it's yeah. going to be, it's going to be pretty important when you guys finally release this. But you know, if there's anything you're willing to share at this point, I'd, I'd love to know what, what you've seen so far. Right. So first of all, I should say a word about. Um, what yeah, uh, uh, error rate is. So error rate is, um, uh, so this is written uh, for, for the listeners who want to have a look. Um, it's, uh, it's a very old, so sorry, it's written E-R-O-W-I-D.org. Um, and it's a very old uh, website. Uh, I think it was founded in, in, uh, in 1995 and actually predates Wikipedia, funnily uh, enough. Uh, hmm. And um, uh, it's um, it, it's a it's a it's a curated database of um, uh, reports, narrative reports of of drug experiences, drug induced experiences. So right. um, uh, any drug user or someone who you know, uh, I mean drug user, uh, uh, I don't mean regular drug user, but anyone who has experienced drugs who has been in a drug induced state can can log in. Um, on the website and, 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 and say what's the what's they've taken um, and, and give a bunch of metadata such as you know their age, weight, gender, uh, 
the dosage and so on, and then describe in, in detail what they felt, what they experienced uh, uh, when, they took, when they took the drug. And um, trip report. Exactly, trip reports that, that, that they have come to be called. And so um, it's been quite popular, actually. And, and as, as of today, there are more than 20,000 reports uh, on the website. Wow. Uh, with pretty much every kind of drug imaginable, including the new uh, uh, latest, uh, you know, research chemicals and and uh, and or and, and or legal highs or uh, you know drugs that are that haven't been very well researched yet in the lab. Um, and and this is uh, for a long time. This was uh, interesting as anecdotal evidence for researchers because you can just look up. Some descriptions to kind of get a sense of what a drug does, and and how how people felt the how experienced the, the experience with one drug, but that's it. Like we couldn't really tap into this wealth of data because uh, scientists work with quantitative data, and this was all narrative reports written in natural language um, that is not easy to uh, use in the context of a scientific study. And so I was thinking about that uh, uh, a year and a half ago, and, and I was also closely following the, the developments of uh, uh, machine learning uh, in, uh, in computer science, and, and specifically what's known as natural language processing, um, which is the, the subdomain of machine learning that, that tries to use uh, machine learning algorithms to uh, extract meaningful data from natural language corpora, from text documents written uh, in, uh, in natural language. So, so natural language such as English, French, and so on, as opposed to right. uh, uh, coded in a, in a, in a, in a computer code. Um, so, um, so, so I was thinking, uh, I got this idea that, that I could try to use the latest tools that have been developed in, in with, with machine learning, with, uh, deep learning uh, to um, uh, process natural language documents, try to apply these to trip reports from error.org. So what I did is that I, I, I scraped, uh, I selected about seven substances, I think, um, that I selected them because I was specifically interested in, in drug-induced evolution at the time, and I, I selected substances that were the most likely to induce this effect. Um, and I scraped all of the reports from the website that concerned these substances, and that's around 6,000 reports. So a uh, first thing that's wow. interesting to note is that the typical lab study, scientific study of, of uh, the effects of the drug, uh, has around 10 to 15 um, participants. That's a very right. small sample size. Just because it's, it's yeah. complicated, you have to get ethical approval, you have to recruit people who have previous experience with the drug, and it, takes, it also takes a lot of time and so on. So um, for all these reasons, it's difficult to have big sample sizes. Right. So having a corpus of 6,000 reports, uh, uh, that's very interesting, just if only because of the sheer size of the, of the sample. And so then I ran this, um, this kind of sub algorithm called a topic modeling algorithm. Uh, it is an algorithm which is called latent Dirichlet allocation. Uh, but there's no need to go into the details. But basically, it's a, it's a sophisticated probabilistic algorithm uh, 
which tries to guess based on the focus of document which topics are discussed in each document. Hmm. Um, uh, and it does this in a completely um, unsupervised, an unsupervised fashion, uh, as, as uh, computer scientists say. So, um, in a, what, what we might also call a, a bottom up fashion as opposed to a top down uh, fashion. So, that means that I'm not the one who's telling the algorithm to look for this and this and this topic, or this word and this word and this word. It figures it out on its own. So the only input coming from me is I, I so to speak, tell the algorithm, look for 100 topics. Give me the 100 most discussed topics in this corpus. And, right. uh, and the algorithm on its own figures out what are the 100 most discussed topics. Um, and so then you get a, what's what's called the topic model, which uh, which you can uh, visualize uh, thanks to some tools. You can visualize them uh, graphically, uh, and you can kind of have a sneak peek into your your huge corpus of, of six thousand documents without having to read any of them. You don't you know you don't have to actually read any of the of the of the truth reports. You can directly peek into uh, the hundred biggest topics discussed. And that was very interesting because this was just the pre preliminary kind of like proof of concept phase of the study um, that I did on my own. And I found that you could actually get reliably some, some topics discussing uh, certain kinds of effects of the drug. So, for instance, you had a topic clearly linked to uh, the visual and the auditory effects of the drugs. Mm -hmm. So, each topic is, is uh, um, defined by a set of keywords. Um, to simplify things a little bit, and then this topic would define the keywords uh, patterns, uh, sounds, colors, and so on and so forth. So it was all words, lexicon of visual and auditory effects. Uh, you, had a pat you had a topic that was clearly associated with the kind of like natural environment in which people have taken these drugs. So with, with keywords such as um, forest, sand, beach, um, uh, grass, hmm. uh, tree, and so on and so forth. Um, you had a topic that seemed to be like, what, what was it most interesting to me is, is you had a topic that seemed, seemed to be clearly linked to ego dissolution with, with top keywords such as ego, self, death, dissolution, everything, consciousness, and so on. Um, right. So, so it, was, it was, you know, it was the first, first kind of proof of concept phase, but it was already interesting. Uh, and then, you know, I presented these results in a, in a, in a big uh, uh, conference in speculative research in, in Amsterdam over a year ago uh, in June 2016. And then I, I kind of like moved on to other things and I had to, to, to uh, for a while, to just uh, um, uh, stop working on it. Um, right. And then I was, uh, uh, I'm fortunate to have been contacted uh, Months later, by uh, by uh, uh, another student uh, um, uh, called Hannes Kettner, who um, who was uh, uh, both interested in psychedelic research and in computer science, and with him, uh, he's uh, uh, he's motivated me to to to, um, to to get back to this, and 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 he's been um, uh, helping me uh, a lot to. Uh, Actually, get started again on this, and, uh, and he's been uh, uh, doing great work by looking at the, the top uh, twenty 
substances that are discussed on array.org. So looking at, at what, which substances have the most reports to have the biggest possible sample. Uh, and this time we're not we're not no, no longer just looking at drug industry good solution. We're looking at we're interested in in, in what any kind of information we can get from this study modeling procedure. Um, and uh, we uh, we have yet to get some you know results from this. But basically, what we want to do is we want to uh, use this tool to get uh, to see if we get we can get reliably. Uh, uh, information about the effects of each drug separately. So we don't, instead of do, uh, instead of mm -hmm. doing the topic model of all the trip reports put together for, from all the drugs, we're going to do separate topic models for each drug, and then we're going to use some tools to compare the topic models uh, between the drugs and see if we can get actually good information about how different uh, two drugs are. And right. that's that's interesting. Uh, because first of all, we would kind of be able to see if um, this correlates with uh, the the neuropharmacological uh, classes of the drugs. So, like, if two drugs act on the same neurotransmitter in the brain, do they also share the same effects as reported by the trip report? Um, and then uh, uh, it's also potentially very interesting for harm reduction because there are constantly new drugs coming out uh, in, you know, uh, uh, on the market, the, 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 the dark market and the street and so on. Um, and, and research always has a hard time catching up with that because uh, there's always a delay between the appearance of a new right. drug uh, and, and, and whether it can be studied in the lab and whether we can, uh, researchers can study the risks, potential harms and so on. Right. So having access to uh, the raw database of people adding constantly adding new reports on new drugs uh, and being able to study their effects uh, automatically through topic modeling um, that's potentially a great way forward to save a lot of time and and actually have a good idea of you know what are what are the typical effects of these drugs across dozens hundreds of thousands of users without having to read manually each report and having to do some uh, uh, estimation work of some guessing, some guessing that is prone to human error. So that's something that I think is quite, quite, quite um, exciting. Um, and I also, I'm also excited about the future of this technology because I think moving forward, the progress of, of natural language processing is going to blur the boundary between qualitative and quantitative research. Because traditionally, um, there is a big divide between uh, things such as questionnaires. Uh, with which you mm. can, you know, because people people rate each item on a scale. You can do some fancy quantitative measurements uh, and some some diagrams and so on. Uh, uh, and that's why it's been it's been privileged by scientists uh, in, in, in in psychology and neuroscience in, in recent decades. Um, and qualitative analysis uh, uh, refers to uh, uh, when you take natural language data, for for example, uh, the, a transcript from an interview. Um, or just a, just a spontaneous report from someone describing the experience, and you try to manually uh, code uh, each aspect of what they describe. So instead of relying on questionnaires, you just um, uh, try to find you, you ask uh, um, humans to uh, interpret to the best of their abilities the main things discussed in the in the in the reports or in the interviews, and to try to compare um, different experiences.
uh, that's kind of the old way of looking at qualitative uh, data. Uh, but with right. the emergence of natural language processing, and, and, and this is a field that's moving extremely fast and it's already powering, uh, you know, such stuff like, like uh, Google searches and, and uh, mm -hmm. uh, uh, faces, some of the Facebook algorithms and, and uh, uh, a lot of other things. Um, um, it's a rapidly evolving field where uh, uh, um, uh, more and more algorithms are able to get at the semantic contents of, of whole paragraphs of text. So uh, it's not that far-fetched to think that within 10 to 20 years, um, machines, algorithms, will actually be able to, to do uh, 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 qualitative analysis much better than humans because without any, any biases. Uh, and actually uh, uh, turn it into quantifiable data. So actually uh, um, see like a, a, a merging somehow between quantitative and qualitative analysis. So that's something that I think is it's quite exciting. And it's, it's still a very niche thing to use this kind of tool in, in psychology, neuroscience, yeah. and philosophy. But I think it's, it's coming. Yeah, it sounds yeah. like this study is going to have a, a, a profound effect on you know, oh, not, well, not only your area but on so much more well hopefully <laughs> uh yeah I, don't, I mean i'm not sure uh i don't know i mean it's it's, it's going to be the, the the paper if we uh um if we end up publishing the paper and which we'll hopefully do um uh, will be um a proof of concept but hopefully we'll convince people that indeed there is something to to use there uh, I mean, I, I, I don't want to suggest that, that we are, we are, we are uh, uh, properly speaking pioneers in this, in this field because all of this has never been done with, with drug studies to my, in drug research to, my, to the best of my knowledge. Um, there is an emerging field called the digital humanities uh, of people with, in the, within you know, history and literature uh, using natural language processing to, to get new info. Uh, so, for instance, right. uh, to, to give you a use case, there's, uh, I think, a historian who recently looked at uh, diplomatic cables between several countries uh, in the archives for, on, on, on a span of like several decades. That's, that, that represents uh, many thousands of documents. Uh, and uh, it would be impossible to go through them individually, manually. Uh, but what, what he, he did is using a, um, doing a topic model of, of, of this corpus to see what were the most discussed issues in, the, in these diplomatic cables without having to read a single one of them, just letting the machine do, do its work. That, that's another case, uh, example of a use case of, uh, of this thing. But yeah, I mean, hopefully it does have an impact on, on the future of drug research. Yeah. Well, I, I sure look forward to seeing that, that uh, the results when you publish that, so I'll, I'll keep an eye out for that. Nice. Thanks. All right, Rafael. I think that is a that's a good good place to stop today. Yeah. Um, again, I'm I'm uh, I just can't tell you how grateful I am for all the time you've given me today in answering You're all welcome. these questions. Yeah, it's, it's been a real pleasure learning from it's you. Pleasure for me too. Excellent. Excellent.